Today is Nehemiah 13, the final chapter in Nehemiah. I appreciate that in God's plan, Rich was at Ephesians chapter 6, which is about Satan's attack against God's people and what God's people do with that. And it's a pretty fitting message from Nehemiah 13. I'll start by telling you about this movie. Some of you might have seen it. It's called The Inside Man. It has Clive Owen and Denzel Washington. I'm not going to give away anything, but I need to just tell you that it starts out, Clive Owen says that he's inside a cell. And he says it's not a prison cell, though, but he's using that word intentionally, some kind of cell. And he's telling someone else, we've got the perfect bank robbery planned. Denzel Washington is the police detective who's investigating the whole robbery. And the movie goes on. It's a great movie, but I won't say much about it, except just to say that the movie depends on an inside man. And I'm not giving anything away because it's the title of the movie, but it has to be a man inside the bank who's part of the story, who's part of making the movie work. And Nehemiah 13 reveals there's an inside man. And what's inside that man makes all the difference for what happens. Let's read verses 1 to 3. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Hearing God's word changes their choices. Life follows listening. You've probably noticed that we don't have Ammonites and Moabites around here. I haven't, you know, we just moved to West Yarmouth, but I'm not running into Ammonites and Moabites. Some Brazilians, some people from other places. There's this one guy from Tennessee around here. I was reminded of that guy this morning. I was talking to Pat, and I lapsed into Southern talking, and he noticed it right away, and we chuckled together because we can laugh at ourselves, right? And I just sort of realized, like, oh, yeah, I get relaxed, which is easy to do around you, and I lapse into this sort of Appalachian Southern kind of thing, and he noticed it. Other than me, even with me, we don't ban different people from church, right? We don't say, well, you're not from Barnstable County, so you can't be part of us. So what is going on with saying these Ammonites, these Moabites, they cannot come and be part of us? Because that just sounds a little bit weird, right? A little bit disrespectful. Well, there's a grudge here between the Jews and the Ammonites and the Moabites, and it's several hundred years old by this point. A long, long time before this point, the Jews have left Egypt, they're going through the wilderness, and I'm moving rapid speed. They get to the edge of the promised land. They don't have a lot of food, right? You've been wandering for 40 years. You don't have farms. You don't have lots of cattle that you just kind of slaughter at will and, you know, cook up the beef and take the harvests and eat the food and all the rest. They don't have it. The Ammonites and Moabites do because they're settled. When the Jews need food, the Ammonites and Moabites say no. They hire a prophet named Balaam. They thought he had some kind of divine power and could kind of call down curses. And he did have some, but God ended up saying, Balaam, every time you try to curse these people that I love, I'm going to change your curse into a blessing. Mm -hmm. So that whole thing unravels. And that is what's at the heart. That's the root of the conflict between the Jews and the Ammonites and Moabites. Now, I know that sounds like it makes sense, but it doesn't stir your heart necessarily. So let's bring it into the modern day. 
You just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? Now imagine that 40 years ago, on the day before Thanksgiving, you ran out of stuffing. And like most good Americans, you don't keep stuffing in your cupboard like all year long, because stuffing's just not necessarily the food that a lot of people just keep around eating every single week, right? So it's the day before Thanksgiving, you need stuffing, you go over to your neighbor, Mr. Ammonite, and say, hey, my family's all coming in town, I'm short on stuffing, it's the day before Thanksgiving, can you share some stuffing? And Mr. Ammonite says, absolutely not, get off my yard. And you're like, whoa, hey, I need the stuffing, come on, man, get off my yard. I'm not sharing my stuffing with you. 40 years later, you show up here on a Wednesday night for our prayer meeting, and guess who's sitting over there? Mr. Ammonite's grandson. And you go, I know your face. I've seen that nose before. Your grandfather wouldn't give me the stuffing 40 years ago. I, I know you. I know your family. What do you do at that moment? You throw the grandson out? Well, thank you. You're a great group of people. So some, you know, no, of course not, right? You give them, some, you give them a chance. There's more to the story, though. There's another piece behind this grudge. Let's read verses 4 to 9. Now, prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, Tobiah's an Ammonite, had prepared a large room for him, Tobiah, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. But during all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Hundreds of years later, an old struggle creates an opportunity for fresh obedience. These weren't literally the same Ammonites or Moabites. Tobiah is not one of the people who said he wouldn't give bread and water to the Jews that were leaving Egypt. The Moabites and Ammonites, though, still are a problem because they always try to push God out of the hearts of the Jews. They always try to get the Jews to reject God, to turn away from God, to not worship him faithfully. Now, there are times when the Jews welcome foreign nations in or people from other groups there's Ruth, right? She's a Moabite, but she converts. She chooses to follow the one true God. She's welcomed in with open arms. There are times when that happens, but before the Jews pushed out the foreigners in Nehemiah, they realized that one of their own, Eliashib the priest, had betrayed them. He'd taken this room, right? Cleared it out. And if you read on in Nehemiah and dig around, you'll find out Eliashib's son, Excuse me, his grandson was married to a relative of Sanballat. Well, Sanballat is from another people group, but he and Tobiah are tight. Sanballat and Tobiah love to do everything together. They hate the building of the wall. They're against the Jews. They're opposed to all this stuff. They're upset about it. When Eliashib's grandson marries into Sanballat's family, there's all this compromised loyalty. Sin always starts with compromised loyalty. 
Eliashib had charge of the storage rooms for worship. He turned part of God's temple into a second home for Tobiah. That's pretty crazy, right? Like it's the temple of God. And he's like, Tobiah, move on in. You might remember I said some Jews had betrayed each other or had betrayed the people of God. Well, we found the rat. You know, Eliashib's the inside man. And what's inside the man is not good because he's selling the temple out for his family. Imagine bringing this into our time and our experience. Imagine that and we have a few like storage closets around here in this building, but imagine that we had one that was all our worship stuff, the guitar strings, maybe an extra keyboard, some parts to the drum, extra microphones, the communion cups, all the things that we need for worship. I know those don't sound like dramatic, but Imagine that, you know, that's the room and we put everything we need in there so that we can worship God, so that we can seek him, praise him, and do that in the way that we are used to doing it. And one Sunday morning rolls around and Tori and Luke and other people are here and they're getting things ready. And they say, oh, we just broke a guitar string. And somebody else is like, well, we don't have enough communion cups. And so then people start trying to figure this out. Well, they go to the storeroom where we keep all these things, should be easy enough. And what do they find? Empty. Airbnb, that's good. I should have come up with that. That's good. What I, what I came up with is imagine that one of us, we'll call him Eli, since there's no Eli's in the room. Imagine that Eli has said, I got some friends from New York who really like New York sports. So he throws out all the worship stuff. Communion's gone. Guitar strings are gone. Microphones gone. Drum cymbals, extra chairs, all of it gone. And he just fills it up with leather chairs. And you go in there to get the communion cups. And guys are in there smoking cigars, watching that year the Giants beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And it's like, what is going on in here? I need the communion cups. People are getting angry. It's getting intense. And one of us has the gumption to say, hey, this is like our worship storage room. I don't know what you're doing in here, but I came in. We got, we got service in like 27 minutes. We need those communion cups. We need some guitar strings. And these New Yorkers are like, buzz off. I don't care about your worship. I don't care about your communion cups. I'm in here. It's the third quarter. I want to see what happens to the game. I'm right in the middle of a great cigar. Get out of my face and they blow it in your face, right? And you're like, (coughs) for those of you who don't enjoy the smell, it's this awful situation. And you go to Eli, who we thought was one of us and say, hey, you know, what's up? We put you in charge of the worship room, but it's full of these like cigar smoking people who are yelling at us and being disrespectful and they're you know, rubbing it in our faces that we're trying to worship and all they care about is football, what's going on? And he's like, hey, the room is mine. I do with it what I want. Those are my friends, those are my family. That's a good time for them. Get out of here. (laughs) Now what do we do, right? Now you got like 23 minutes to the service and you're not even like, you're just like, what are we doing here? This is awful. It's no wonder with betrayal like that that Nehemiah throws all his stuff out. Like, I don't know how you'd get rid of, I don't know what the dump was back then, but I mean, Nehemiah got it out of there. It's no wonder he threw it out. Nehemiah, yeah, exactly. Nehemiah was gone for a year. He went to see the king, which is a natural thing since the king had authorized this whole rebuilding project. Nehemiah's gone. And you know what? It's true. When the cat's away, the mice will play. Chapter 12 had the Jews marching on the walls. Just last week, chapter 12, they're marching on the walls. They're praising God. Amazing experience. The very next chapter, they've gone 
from that incredible moment to diving headfirst into just depravity and idolatry and all kinds of unfaithfulness. Moses had the same problem. He goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. While he's up there face-to-face with God, the people have made a golden calf and said, it was this God that led us out of Egypt. Thousands of years later, Paul starts a church. He teaches them. He grows them. He gets them ready. He leaves town. Word spreads. He finds out they've gone off the rails. i got to write these people a letter. He writes them a letter. He says, this is what's wrong. This is what you need to stop doing. This is what you need to start doing. Don't forget the gospel. Remember the Jesus that you believed in. He gets them back on track. Same here with Nehemiah. Sin's an inside job. And it spreads because outside jabs overcome inner allegiance. Now, some of you heard me use the word jab. And if you're a big fan of boxing or you go around like fighting all the time, fist fighting all the time, then you already know what a jab is. But for those of you who don't know what a jab is, I just want to explain it to you. I'm looking around. Who's, you're, you're a pretty big-looking fellow. How about you come up here? This is not a joke. This is a real invitation. So, yeah, absolutely. Now, the good news is I'm not going to punch or be punched, but I do need one other person. Mackenzie, would you be willing to come up here? You can come with her if she would, if she would feel better. All right, Mackenzie is our very brave volunteer. Come on in. Hi, Mackenzie. How old are you, Mackenzie? Three and three quarters. All right. Yeah, good for you. Chris, I'm not going to ask how old you are, but why don't you tell us how tall you are? Six one. Six one. All right, she's three and three quarters. I need you to make me a promise, Mackenzie, that you're not going to hurt Chris. Good. He has to go to work tomorrow, right? He's going to work tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. That's what we'll see after this. Yeah. So we're talking about jabs. So a jab is a type of punch. And it's not the most powerful punch, for those of you who want to know. Like, there are types of punches where you rotate your body a certain way, get your hips into it, all this kind of stuff. You can go watch boxing or YouTube videos, whatever, figure it out. I'm just saying there are really powerful punches. And then there's a really light punch which is very functional for measuring the distance between yourself and someone else. I'm not going to punch Chris, but I can be like this and realize, hey, I'm too far away from Chris, right? I'm not going to hit him. Now, say that Chris and Mackenzie get into it. I have a little little disagreement. (laughs) So they get into it a little bit. If Mackenzie starts hitting Chris, it's going to just be like jabs, right? Just, it's light punches. She can come in there. She can punch him in, you know, quite a different, few different sides of his legs, but that's about all that's available to her, right? <laughs> it's going to be a pretty challenging fight, right? But a jab is very useful because she could tell, like, oh, I know where to, I can see how far away I am from Chris, how to hate Chris, all these kind of things. But what you're about to see in Nehemiah is these jabs turn out to have consequences for Israel. I think it's fair to say that Mackenzie could probably jab Chris all she wants to, and what would be what would happen? Probably not a whole lot. You look like a pretty tough dude. We're not going to find out this morning because we do want you to go to work tomorrow. So you might have yard work this afternoon, Easter race. Thank you very much. You've been very brave. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a happy birthday too. Have a great Monday at work too. So. You're about to see Israel have all these jabs. 
We did Mackenzie and Chris a favor. We don't want to encourage fighting in church. It's probably happened before, but not, not here, all right? <laughs> You're about to watch Israel, though, take jab after jab after jab. All through the rest of chapter 13. Verses 10 through 14 shed some more light on these jabs. Verse 10 says, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services." Sin's first consequence is contaminated worship. I said it starts with compromised loyalty, like Eliashib the priest, but the first consequence is contaminated worship. Because these Jews had made a covenant in other chapters before this, and they said, we'll provide what's needed for worship. There's got to be wood, animal sacrifices, grain offerings. There's all this stuff, right, that's got to be brought. That's why they had the storehouse. But the Jews have abandoned that. They've not been faithful to it. These Levites needed supplies, and they weren't getting it, so they have to go back to the fields. That's what the verse is about, saying they had to go work. I mean, nobody's bringing them food, nobody's bringing them wood, so they can't do the work of a Levite, and they can't get their needs met, because they're supposed to be full-time Levites, but they got to go out to the fields and work. The house of God gets neglected. The singers leave. The Levites leave. Pretty soon, you don't have people bringing the wood. You don't have people doing animal sacrifices. They have no religion, no opportunity to really practice it like they want to. The way they use their resources says a lot about their spiritual condition. This is why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And while Nehemiah was away, the Jews mostly proved unfaithful. But Nehemiah is a clean up the mess disciple. It's really interesting. He's just always like cleaning up the mess. He's already thrown Tobiah out of the temple. I mean, sorry, out of the storeroom. Now he brings the Levites and the singers back. He puts people in charge and says, you make sure they get what they need. You Levites, you singers, you do your job. That's what you're here for. He empowers people to be in charge of these storehouses and to keep making sure the people are bringing in what's necessary for God's worship. These guys were warehouse workers, basically. I don't think they had like forklifts driving around probably, you know, they, but they had something going around like warehouse workers, making sure all this donated stuff could be used in worship. Oh, well, Nehemiah's got it under control. We can all take a deep breath. Well, no. There's another jab. We'll go to verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. 
It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gate so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. That's not a jab, by the way. That's going to be a power punch. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O oh my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. The next thing that happens is the inside job of sin corrupts obedience. The next jab that the Jews failed to block messes with their obedience. That's why Nehemiah again closes the gates of the city at dark on the Sabbath. It's only the second time in the book he's done that. The first time, several chapters ago, it's because they had literal physical threats. They had literal enemies outside, and it was like, well, close the gates so that the soldiers and the armed people can't come in here and raid the city. But this time's totally different. It's merchants coming in, figs, grapes, all this great food, all this great stuff, but the purpose is the same. Keep the enemies out so that they can fully obey the Lord, so that they can be completely faithful to God. Back in 2005, 2007, I didn't have cable TV or internet, which probably doesn't sound that amazing to some of you and probably also sounds like, wow, how did you live to some others of you? I, how I lived is back then, Netflix, some of you know this, but Netflix would like mail you the DVD to your house, came in a red envelope. Some of you have seen this. Some of you are amazed, like, wow, the postal service was involved in this? Yeah, they sent you the DVD. First, you had to make a big list at Netflix.com. They send you the DVD. Then you get the DVD. You watch the movie. You put the DVD back in a different red envelope, send it back to Netflix. They send you a new one. The whole process was terrible. It took like three days, you know? You couldn't stream anything. But I realized as a single guy, I gotta shut the gates. I'm gonna live without internet for a while. I'm gonna live without cable TV for a while. I had to shut the gates in my life. I needed that to be done. And these Jews needed it to be done. Verse 16 says that the people of Tyre, which was about 12 miles away, they lived on the sea. They'd catch all this fish. And man, they made good fish. They'd smoke it, and they'd salt it, and it was 12 miles away. So even back then, you know, they put it on the ox cart or whatever. 12 miles, you could get there in a day, fresh off the boat. We got fish for you. The Jews are like, fling open the gates, bring it in. But it's the Sabbath. It's smoked fish from Tyre. Come on. Scripture says there was all kinds of merchandise. They had good stuff coming in. They had good stuff. iPhones, right? Good stuff. New tablets. Gotta have it. Websites, nice new ottoman. Look at the rug going by. That's a really nice rug. That pair of jeans from Banana Republic, hey, that's pretty good. I like that. I like that. My mother-in-law was having fun with my kids on Thanksgiving. And I don't she found some place in Rhode Island that had exotic foods, I'll call it, dipped in chocolate. Some of you may not want to, you know, think about this, but Things kids would find really entertaining, right? So my kids are like opening it up and like, ooh, you know? <laughs> Never had that 
crustacean dipped in chocolate, we'll say. Never had that other thing, you know, dipped in chocolate. Python jerky was the mild one that I feel relatively safe about. Who, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, how do you get, like, who, who real, like, where do you go to get a python? Like, those aren't farmed, but somebody took python, turned it into jerky, you know what I mean? Like, how's this happen, right? It's kind of world we live in. And God in his word says, shut the gates on the Sabbath. Let me in, keep that stuff out for one day a week so that your soul thrives, so that you walk with me and know me. Get the fish tomorrow. I was remembering when I was growing up, speaking, of, I was talking earlier about being, you know, from down south, from a small town, and, you know, like pre-Amazon, small town, but we had Walmart. People used to say, man, you can get anything at Walmart. You can get stuff you didn't even know existed. You couldn't even imagine, like, it existing. And I got to thinking about that as I was thinking about these Jews and the gates being closed and stuff. And I was like, yo, what what you can get at Walmart now? Like, is Walmart still that place where you can just get stuff that blows your mind? And the answer is yes. Because I Googled around. and like, what's the weirdest thing you can get at Walmart? And I don't know how you decide that. But one of the things that really shocked me is that there's this thing now that's like a footy for a little child, like a two-year-old. They have to be mobile. But you put them in this like footy thing, and somebody's decided that on the chest and on the legs and on the back, they would put a like a dust mop thing. <laughs> so literally, like you're like, get out there, go play, Johnny Jessica, troll around, and, and little Jessica's, you know, just doing her thing, having a great time. She has no idea she's mopping the floor for you, you know? <laughs> Who knew that this stuff even existed? I mean, like, I know some of you are like, I'm getting on my phone now, going to walmart.com. <laughs> Black Friday, no, but, and hey, it's a great gift because your grandkids are going to come visit. So, like, let the grandchild roll around and get that stuff off, you know? And you can, like, you know, use, like, 3M sticker hook, that double-sided tape kind of stuff, and put, like, wet Swiffers on it, I'm sure. Like, you can get creative, you know what I mean? And let that child just roll around and really do a good job. Put them in the kitchen for, like, 30 minutes, then drag them into the other room. All kinds of options. All kinds of options. It's hilarious, but it's, it's not totally like the thing that God wants us to shut our gates about. I mean, a baby romper mopper, I think that's what it's called for those of you who need to go find it. I think it's because like a romper is like some kind of word for a kid's clothing. So like there's romper plus mop, romper mopper. That's what I'm going to call it. So the romper mopper is probably not a tremendous threat to your faith. But there's other things. You've got to shut the gate on that. You've got to shut the gate on that. What threatens your Sabbath? What threatens your faith? Because part of what they're shutting the gate on, remember, is these Moabites and Ammonites aren't just people who said, we're not giving you stuffing and come by a romp-a-mopper. These Ammonites and Moabites are like, don't believe in God. Don't worship him. Don't honor him. What affects you? Verse 23, the last jab. In those days... I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair, pretty rough, (laughs) and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God. 
And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, there he is, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. The spiraling, multiplying, diversifying nature of sin continues to spread. It's a disturbing reality that betraying God leaves no stone unturned, no part of life untainted and corrupted. First, it's the temple and worship. They could have excused it and said, ah, it's just a storeroom. Then it's the Sabbath, their vital connection to God and obedience. Then it's keeping their promises. We'll give the wood we said we would. We'll supply the needs. We'll worship God like we said we would. Next, it's unfaithful marriages and threatened children. Sin always pollutes the family. And here's the thing. You might be a little bit like, wow, that's pretty strong. Sin always pollutes the family. And it does feel very strong because Nehemiah raises the idea that if the Jewish children can't read the scripture because they speak Ashdod and they only read Ashdod because their mom knew Ashdod and the dad wasn't stepping in and so the mom's teaching the language and the mom's teaching the culture and the mom's engaging the kids and raising them up at a young age, they can't read the scriptures because the scriptures aren't written in Ashdod. Well, what difference does that make? What's the big deal? Well, if they don't benefit from that, if they don't grow up being taught that from a young age, in a generation, they're gone. Because they'll be worshiping mom's gods, the Ashdod gods, the Ammonite gods, the Moabite gods, whatever. They'll be gone. They'll be totally checked out on that. The faith of the next generation, Nehemiah says, starts with this generation. That's why your influence on every kid matters. Do you know what god the Ammonites worshipped? Because I'm not, ultimately what I want you to see that's not said on the pages of scripture is that it's not just like, oh, those Jewish kids didn't get to read scripture in Jew. Why, why didn't they get like their iPhone app to like translate that for them? You know, couldn't they have just read? I mean, couldn't they just like, wasn't there somebody who could just translate it? Do you know who the Ammonites worshipped? It was the god Molech. Do you know how they worshipped Molech? Sacrificing children. You know who the Moabites worshipped? A god named Chemosh. You know how they worshipped Chemosh? Sacrificed children. Satan knew, if I can keep those children from reading the scriptures, I can find a, a great destructive end for these kids. And all I got to do is keep them from knowing the language, keep them from reading the scripture, and I can't wait until they get sacrificed to me. He had, Satan had, a real path of destruction for these kids and for these families. These kids around Nehemiah are losing their faith because of people who sacrifice their children to worship false gods. What hope can there be? This is no jab, right? What hope can there be when these children are sliding into destruction? Well, you remember when I said there's a man in Israel, an inside man who makes all the difference? 
That's not Tobiah, although he's been a pretty dark character in this story. It's not Eliashib, the high priest, although he's done a lot of betrayal. It's Nehemiah. He's the wall trader. I'm sorry, he's the kingdom trader. He's the wall builder. He's the guy who said, I'm leaving Babylon to go make a difference because the people in Jerusalem, their lives are destroyed. They're totally under reproach. Everything is bad. Nehemiah points ahead like a lighthouse. And when his light shines out over Jerusalem, when his light shines out over Israel, like a lighthouse here shines out over the water, do you know what you see in the distance? A Christ who came and overturned the tables in the temple and said, not in God's house, not among God's people. Nehemiah overturned all the wickedness that was around him. And he kept cleaning up the messes, kept cleaning up the messes, kept cleaning up the messes, kept throwing people out. This Christ reflects a bigger picture in Scripture that comes up again and again and again. That Scripture shows there's one good person, one faithful person, one obedient person who says, I'm going to resist all the evil around me. I'm not going to let things be as bad as they were. There's all these compromised people. There's all these struggling people. There's all these wicked people around me, led especially by some really wicked people, some, some Tobias and some Sanballats and people like that. But mostly there's just a bunch of compromised people struggling, walking in darkness. And Scripture keeps saying God raises up somebody, and the ultimate somebody is Jesus. And we get to spend all the rest of Advent celebrating him and anticipating him and being excited about the coming of the Son. But for now... Christ is the ultimate kingdom trader. He's the ultimate one who said, I'm leaving heaven and I'm coming to earth. I'm trading the life I had for the life that these people need so I can give it away to them. The son of God became the son of man that whosoever believes in him would have eternal life. And what happens when people want to trade kingdoms? What happens right now if people said, I, I would trade my kingdom. I would give up my kingdom. I would live a different life. Well, a thief on the cross made it plain remember me. That thief said, remember me when you come into paradise. Is what that thief, he's on the cross, Christ is there. The thief says, remember me when you come into paradise. I love how much remember came up in Nehemiah 13. Remember me, God. Remember me, God. Remember me, God. And that thief on the cross heard what Nehemiah directly on the pages of scripture did not hear. That thief heard, today you will be with me. Because we have a God who remembers us. And Nehemiah's request that he said over and over again in chapter 13, remember me, God, remember me, God, remember me, God, isn't saying, put my name on a plaque up in heaven. Like, you know, that wing that you're building on for people who do a lot, like the Hall of Fame, you know? Like, Nehemiah's not like, I want like a plaque or one of those bricks in the gold street that says like, dude, Nehemiah was awesome. <laughs> like Nehemiah gets like a brick in the street. You know, the rest of us are just glad to walk on it. But Nehemiah gets a brick with his name and he's got a plaque. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, remember how awesome I am. He's saying, remember me because I need your help. It's not about honor. It's not about celebrating Nehemiah saying, show me some grace, God. Give me some help. The people around me are corrupt. The people around me are compromised. The children are in terrible danger. And meanwhile, everybody's going, smoked fish, smoked fish. We don't know what's going to happen to our kids because we're not even paying enough attention. But man, the fish is awesome. All kinds of merchandise coming in. We got the baby romper mopper this year. Like, we love it. This is awesome. This is awesome. And Nehemiah says, I'm paying attention. I traded kingdoms. I'm a wall builder. I care about those people. I see the darkness. I'll fight the changes. 
I'm sorry, the challenges, I'll fight the enemies, I'll do battle. But remember me, God. Notice me. Help me. Be with me. Nehemiah says, I'm doing my little W work, God. I'm doing my little W work, but I need your big W work. I need your big W work because I'm down here with all these challenges. God is looking for men and women who will invest their lives and adjust their priorities and redirect their ambitions. Do you remember how this whole book started? Nehemiah heard that the people in Jerusalem were in great distress and reproach. Do you know some people like that? Nehemiah's commitment to go back, to leave his cushy job and rebuild a wall and deal with all the stuff we've heard about for the last many weeks, all that stuff, the religious renewal, building the wall, both kinds of work, both kinds of work, spiritual and earthly, came with challenges. It was a long work, took a lot of time. There were practical challenges, there were spiritual opportunities, there were relational dilemmas, <laughs> to put it mildly. Peace, right? Peace between people groups, peace between nations. If you've traded kingdoms, or when you do someday, hopefully do that, are you kind of looking at the whole spectrum of the work for people in distress, people living in reproach? There's all kinds of needs there. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. You remember I talked about Denzel Washington and Clive Owen, the inside man. A perfect robbery required somebody inside the bank. Tobiah seemed to have the perfect robbery in the temple. I got a brother-in-law or a relative who's a priest, and I'm in tight with Sanballat. Now we got this whole perfect thing set up. Sin is an inside job that spreads when outside jabs overcome inner allegiance. And they thought they had it. Got the Sabbath messed up, got the marriages messed up, got the kids messed up. Little punches can lead to big sins. Messed up their worship and obedience, all the rest. But Nehemiah shows us there's always a way to build. There's always a way to turn it around. Pray. Shut your gates. Go build walls and increase worship. Trade your kingdom so people around you become, they go from being distressed people to becoming worshipers. That's what you can do. Now you say, how can one person do all this? Because you already got all your, you know, life, right? I got my life. How can one person do all this? I would suggest to you that it's simple. It's not easy. It's not easy. But it's simple. Pursue what God wants done, where you are, as you can, asking God to remember you. Only, only King Jesus gets the plaque. <laughs> he gets to sit on the throne. But Hebrews 4 says we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's all Nehemiah is doing. Remember me, God. Remember me. I'm building. I'm struggling. I'm falling behind. They're getting worse. They're getting worse. Our kids, our kids. The Sabbath, our marriages, so many challenges. Remember me, God. Pursue what God wants done. Ask God to remember you. It's not about being perfect. It's not about completion. Nehemiah 13 doesn't end with completion. Because you didn't, it's, like, it's not all perfect at the end of Nehemiah 13. But ask God, like Nehemiah, see me, God. Remember me, God. Help me, God. Let's pray. You are so kind, Lord. We were people in distress, people whose lives were messed up, 
There's people in our families who didn't shut some gates when they needed to. There's people in our families who didn't take care of us when we were kids. There's people in our families who didn't honor their commitments and stay faithful to what they should have. There's people in our families who didn't make you a priority, didn't seek you. There's people in our families who thought things were the best to seek. There's all kinds of ways we've gone astray. And, and we're only just naming this before you just to acknowledge that the beginning of our life and the, maybe the middle of our life in some ways was distress and struggle and, and stuff being torn down and in a mess. But you're even better than Nehemiah at cleaning messes up. You're even better than Nehemiah at turning life around. He was faithful. He was devoted. He was wise. He was hardworking. All kinds of amazing stuff has happened in this book. But it's because you remembered him. You were answering his prayer for being remembered and helped and seen and heard and assisted all through this book. And we praise you. And we pray that you do it again. Not just in us, but through us. Help us to see the people around us who are in distress. And help us to have hope and faith when they don't. Help us to have wisdom when they don't. Help us, remember us, so that you can repeat this story through Jesus Christ. So that you can repeat the idea that people living in darkness have seen a great light. People trapped by sin have been set free. People without hope, people without life have been born again to an imperishable, indestructible, everlasting, abundant life. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.